Today is, as mentioned, Epiphany Sunday, Sunday where we celebrate the appearance or the manifestation. Epiphany means appearance or manifestation. The appearance or the manifestation of Christ, Israel's Messiah, to the Gentiles. This is set forth in the gospel lesson this morning, the one I just read, where Magi from the East, Gentiles, possibly Persians, come bearing gifts and worshiping the one they call the King of the Jews. And the New Testament lesson from Ephesians, that's Paul's inspired commentary on this great mystery of Gentile inclusion in the one new people of God. And the Old Testament text, Psalm 72, which is the sermon text, is a prophecy of this manifestation to the Gentiles and of the scope, the sweep that it's destined to take. Psalm 72 is one of only two psalms attributed to Solomon. It's probably a royal enthronement song composed for his coronation, or it could be a song used on the anniversaries of his accession to power. The text is, while alluding to Solomon and having certain features about Solomon's reign, the text is, as we shall see clearly, a prophecy of one greater than Solomon, of Jesus, the universal king. And so we'll look at the text under the five headings that are there in your outline. Royal righteousness, endless reign, boundless realm, compassionate king, and everlasting blessing. Royal righteousness, endless reign, boundless realm, compassionate king, and everlasting blessing. So, first, royal righteousness. Verse 1, Psalm 72, verse 1. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. So, the writer... Solomon here pleads with God for God's own justice, for God's own righteousness. He petitions for them. Because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, as it says in Psalm 89. Righteousness and justice are mentioned four times in the first two verses. They're the first principles, if you will, of all sound government. Of all just kingly rule, kings ought to be obsessed with what what is righteousness, what is justice. And this kingly righteousness is described for us in verse 2. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. So the righteousness of the king is to be exercised on behalf of all God's people. They are God's poor and God's afflicted ones. You know, Isaiah, he has a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. He sees a vision of the Messiah King. 
And he says of him, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So under the king in view here, the creation itself, the creation itself will be at peace and will be an instrument of blessing, securing the people's well-being. You can see that in verse 3 where the text says the mountains will bring prosperity or peace to the people and the hills the fruit of righteousness. So it's a scene where righteousness and peace will kiss, as the psalmist says in another place. The land itself will bear witness to this just and righteous order. There's something here which is important, I think, and it's easily overlooked. And it's this. Salvation is always about God, man, and the creation. We often leave that little third part out, and so we end up with these highly individualized, highly personalized notions of what salvation is about. People can talk about salvation and atonement and reconciliation at great length and talk about God and talk about the human being, rightly so, but never talk about creation. Salvation is about God, man, and the creation. God is not simply saving individuals. He's renewing and repairing the world through Jesus Christ. That's what he's about. Your salvation is a means to that greater end. He's establishing the kingdom or the civilization of his king. He's bringing an order that affects the whole cosmos. He created the world. He pities the world. He doesn't give up on the world. And so verse 4 continues, he'll defend the afflicted. And he'll save the children of the needy, the weakest of the weak. He will crush the oppressor. Divine righteousness is acutely concerned for the plight of the poor. Acutely concerned. It's concerned with their defense, with their deliverance, with their prosperity. Righteousness is virtually defined in this first section of the psalm as judging the poor with justice. Now it is true that in the Hebrew Old Testament, the poor includes more than just the economically disadvantaged. It includes those under political oppression, those who are weak, those who are marginalized. But it certainly does include the economic poor. It's just not restricted to the economic poor. And often God's people themselves, regardless of their economic estate, are conceived of as poor and oppressed. Righteousness is acutely concerned, virtually defined by one's treatment or this king's treatment of the poor. Now this doesn't mean that divine righteousness is partial. That that the law is not fair. We have many Old Testament texts that indicate the 
impartiality of God's law. But it does recognize that even where, in principle, the law is no respecter of persons, where all are equal before the law, that nonetheless the rich have ways of becoming more equal than others. Righteous kings know this. Superior lawyers and bribable judges and legal loopholes and influence peddling. Even in the best legal systems, they always favor the rich. Here, however, under this king, the cause of the poor is always upheld. Justice is always done. The weak are never exploited. That's the picture the psalm sets for us. And this means, as the text says, that this king will crush oppression. So divine justice entails ruling, as Psalm 2 says, with a rod of iron. There is some oppression that is not going to be negotiated or willed away. It's going to have to be crushed. And so there's a, there's a extraordinary blend, if you will, of a kind of firmness and a profound compassion in this king. He will crush oppression. Call this a remedial holy force, if you will. It's a holy force which ushers in his peaceable kingdom. This is at the heart of our concern as Christians. We pray for this very defense of the poor, for this very deliverance of the children of the needy, for this crushing of the oppressor, when we pray, thy kingdom come. We are praying for this king to be manifest. When we pray for this king's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray to be delivered from evil. The second point here is endless rain. In verse 5, he'll endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. Now here, if you applied this to Solomon, which was who it applied to originally, this would merely be the language of a courtly extravagance. This is the way people spoke to monarchs in the ancient Near East. Hyperbole. But applied to the greater Solomon, we can take the language in its full force. This is a prophecy of an everlasting, enduring reign. A reign which moves beyond any dynasty in Israel or any human dynasty anywhere. So the other side of this ruling with a rod of iron is, you can see it in verse 6, the just king is like a refreshing or a rejuvenating rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. It's a refreshing, revitalizing rain. Even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one lily watered by the divine rain. And here, it's these kingly waters, the waters of the Spirit, we would say, sent from the greater Solomon, 
They array the people of God and their land with glory. This is a picture of the Messianic King. And what the Messianic King does, what Jesus does, is He creates the conditions for endless flourishing. Verse 7. In His days, the righteous will flourish. Isn't that a magnificent word about the human condition? That we are meant to thrive. To live whole-orbed and full and integrated and not disintegrated lives. This is what it, to, to live wholesome lives. To live fruitful lives. To flourish. In this king's days, the righteous will flourish and prosperity in all its forms or peace will abound even till the moon is no more. I'm very fond of the saying of uh, the great second century church father Irenaeus who said that the glory of God is the human person fully alive. The glory of God is the human person fully alive. I don't think we get this enough in our tradition because we're so focused on the overwhelming, transcendent glory of God that we're often saying, God gets all the glory, nobody else gets any. And it's true, God will not share his glory with another God. And he will not allow us to steal or profane his glory. But guess what? The all-glorious God has as your destiny to glorify you. That means you are going to participate in his glory. In his fullness. In his life. That's why Irenaeus could say the glory of God. Is the human person fully alive? And that is the depiction of life under the messianic king. Everything else is a falling back. Wholeness or shalom is the state in view. So the third point is in verse 8, boundless realm, starting in verse 8. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river, that's the Euphrates, the river to the ends of the earth. The text moves from the duration of his reign to the geographic extent of the reign. So this global dominion, which Adam was to have exercised, and which Solomon did exercise on a regional scale, is now a universal empire of a righteous king. And it's for the realization of this that you and I pray when we say, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 9 says, The desert tribes will bow before him. His enemies will lick the dust. Independent, hostile tribes from the desert east of the the Jordan River are in view. They will bow, or else, like the serpent, they will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish, verse 10. This is probably a, a, a western city on the Mediterranean, possibly as far away as Spain. So not only tribes from the east, the text says, and kings from the far west, but the text says the coastlands 
or the islands, the distant shores, the ends of the earth will come and they will render tribute to this greater Solomonic king. Notice the kings of Sheba and Seba, two southern Arabian tribes from what is probably today Yemen. They'll come and they'll present him gifts. You might remember Solomon himself received a visit and tribute, a gift from the queen of Sheba. You know, there's an earlier version of the opening hymn that we sang today. It has another verse in it that's not in the Trinity hymnal. I have no idea why they took this verse out, but they took it out. Here's the, ver- here's the missing verse. Arabia's desert ranger, to him shall bow the knee. The Ethiopian stranger, his glory come to see. With offerings of devotion, ships from the isles shall meet. To pour the wealth of ocean in tribute at his feet. That's what's in view right here in Psalm 72. Verse 11 summarizes it for us. All kings will bow down to him. All nations will serve him. Total, international, political homage is in view. That's what God is doing in Jesus Christ. Solomon had this bright beginning, but he quickly declined. Something greater than Solomon is in view here. Namely, the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this part of our text is particularly appropriate for epiphany. This is why the readings were keyed the way they are this morning. In the coming of the Gentile, Magi, from the far east, this text, Psalm 72, is fulfilled and it moves into its final phase of fulfillment. And it shall not end until all the kings of the earth bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. That's the destiny of our kingdom that God has established in Jesus Christ. So the fourth point here is the compassion of this king or compassionate king. The text says he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. It's important to see it's primarily this king's tender defense of the helpless. Which wins for him, if you will. Which which turns the hearts of the nations It wins him global admiration and submission. As another hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal, puts it, Not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. This king wins the submission of other human potentates through his compassion. This is an important point, I think. This means that while righteousness and justice are the first principles of kingship, they can never be divorced from or set against compassion. Righteousness and justice, biblically speaking, embrace mercy. They include it. 
It's not like there's righteousness over here and there's mercy over here. And there's justice over here and then there's compassion over here. The concepts are locked into one another. In fact, a lot of the, a lot of the back and forth of American politics is which of these two, two uh, concepts a person emphasizes. Some people emphasize righteousness and justice and law and order. Others emphasize mercy and compassion. There's a swinging back and forth in our public political debate. That whole debate is transcended in this text, by the way. There's no competition between these things in the messianic king and in his kingdom. Verse 13 puts it, he will take pity. Paternal solicitude on the weak and the needy. This is very important. To say that pity and compassion have no place in the administration of justice is to slander the messianic king. And this pity, this pity means that the lives, notice that in the text, the concrete physical existence of the suffering poor are an urgent divine concern. This is why Christians have always been or should always be acutely attuned to the needs of the poor, to serving them, to finding them. The text says he saves the lives of the needy. Verse 14, he rescues them from oppression and violence. Their blood is precious in his sight. There is not one nameless faceless human being, Christian or other minority in Syria or Iraq, whose blood is not precious in this king's sight, who has been forgotten, who will not be vindicated. You will not hear this king say that he cares only about souls and not about the actual full-blooded lives of his servants and his subjects. You might remember Solomon. He made the yoke of his subjects heavy with taxation and labor. And it provoked a crisis, which actually led to the downfall and division of his kingdom. Jesus, the greater Solomon, comes to make the yoke of the righteous poor light so that our lives might flourish. Finally, Endless blessing. Verse 15, long may he live. Another courtly sentiment, but it points to the endless kingship of Christ. May gold of Sheba be given him. him. Again, Solomon received this gold. And what what is the gift that Solomon received from the queen of Sheba? It points ahead to the gold brought from the east by the Magi. This is why Psalm 72 has always been read in the church as an epiphany psalm. The the gifts of the Magi, in effect, are coronation gifts to the one they called the King of the Jews. But who, as their very worship, as Gentiles indicates, is in fact the King of all nations. So verse 16, the blessings of this rain come into view. Let grain abound throughout the land on the tops of the hills. A most unpromising place for soil. A place where you wouldn't expect grain to abound. Even there, grain should abound. It should sway. 
It's, it's, a, it's an ancient Hebraic poetic picture of real, solid, permanent quality of life. Rich in endless fields. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. And let it thrive like the grass of the field. Rich harvests. Images drawn from Israel's life. Depict here the eternal well-being of the people of God and the kingdom. And finally in verse 17. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. This is the everlasting dynasty which has been established in Christ. There are no successors to the throne. We we also sang this morning, the tide of time shall never his covenant remove. When finally there is no moon or sun, the glory of God and the Lamb will light the eternal city. And these blessings are put in distinctly Abrahamic terms in verse 17. Remember, God promised Abraham that he would be blessed and he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. It was always the purpose of God. Always. From the beginning. From the call of Abraham to bless every nation of the earth. That's what Genesis 12 says. And Matthew's text this morning, again, in the Magi, Counselors of Eastern Kings, they are the very first people blessed in Christ. They're the first to call him blessed, the first to acknowledge his epiphany. So I want to conclude by noting something. We should should see at least this that the kingship of Jesus is an obvious political fact. That's how the psalm treats it. That's how the New Testament treats it. And that is certainly how Herod treated it. Herod didn't say, don't worry. It's just an invisible spiritual kingdom that, has no, that does not impinge on the world of real politique. Herod was terrified. And certainly it's the way the Romans viewed it. Because they had to execute this one. The text then is a political manifestation. It carries within it a judgment on Israelite kings and all kings who fail to image this king. It contains the echoes of Psalm 2, which commands Gentile kings to kiss the son and pay him tribute. We ought to do that as the subjects of this kingdom. For as... His epiphany reveals he is the king, the monarch, the political head of all kings. Worship him as such. Amen.